Today's episode of That Song from That Movie is coming up after these messages. This is Wine, Dine, and Storytime. I'm Nydia. I'm Dana. I'm Cindy. And we're your hosts. Have you ruined a family gathering by asking what wine pairs well with eating a husband? Are you the CEO of TMI? Have you ever been kicked under the table because you brought up your favorite dinner topic, atrocities throughout history? Then this podcast is perfect for you. Each week, Dana and I share stories based on topics that include true crime, historical shenanigans, unexplained mysteries, and all things fascinating, while our amateur chef Cindy prepares themed dinners and pairs wines based on those topics. Find us, the Wine, Dine, and Storytime podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a follow. That song from that movie is back, and this time, it's biblical. Culturally sensitive movie and song discussions on today's That Song from That Movie. L-I-S. T-E-N. Nailed it. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. I am your playing with the boys host, Dietrich, and today we're joined by the pharaoh who has the power to take away your food, your home, and your freedom, Alex. <laughs> I knew you were going to do a playing with the boys reference. <laughs> I just knew it. As soon as, as soon as I heard that song earlier when I rewatched the film, I was like, Dee's going to make up reference. Yeah, I had to decide whether or not to put it in there or to have it as one of my main notes about the song later on. So <laughs> I've opted for that instead. Yeah, fair enough. Get out of the way early. Yeah, exactly. And he's practically bringing down the dynasty, Ben. <laughs> it's exactly what my parents say. <laughs> Every Sunday lunch. He's a weak link in the chain. <laughs> yeah. Very weak, yeah. So what have I been watching this week? So... On the advice of D last week, I actually watched an episode of Snack Masters. I knew you were going to watch it. I just knew it. <laughs> what did you think? Well, my main my, my main problem with it is that I don't consider shreddies a snack. I don't consider it a well, breakfast. That series. was covered in the show. Well, they did mention it, but I feel like it's still the game. They're trying to get around it. The fact that they knew it wasn't a snack was silly. But other than that, I thought it was great. <laughs> it is a great show. <laughs> Go back and watch it all on all four, Britain's largest streaming service. Yeah. My Don't other, sponsor us because it's shit. The other issue I had with it, it wasn't such an issue with the show, but it was just with <laughs> myself, is that I really wanted to find out how the actual shreddies were made. And they kept like delaying it and delaying it and like feeding it through. And then it wasn't until yeah. the very end that you just found out. Do you remember when we first added this feature and thought, oh, it'd be good for us to have a way of talking about the films we've watched this week? We're talking about shreddies. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how shreddies are made, Ben? No. Of course he does. He watched Snapmasters. Because I was watching films. Go on then. Go on, go on then. Uh, would... It better be good. <laughs> oh, well, great. Set me up. I mean, it's better than yours because they were actual films. I watched Shrek, Shrek 2. I've still never seen Shrek 3 or 4, ever. You don't want to. Yeah. Whoa, you, whoa, really, you really whoa. don't want to. Oh, Shrek 4 is pretty good. Do the raw. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I love you, daddy. I mean, I would pick Shrek 4 over Shrek 2, but... As uh, Ben co- confirmed the other week, Shrek 1 is a classic. So. <laughs> well, I think Ben denied it, did he not? I did, yes, because it's not. It's just like, it's a very, very, very good film, but it's not a classic. It is a classic. It's, it's not it's... old enough to be a classic. So what you're saying is it will be a classic. It will be a classic, yes, when I cho- say it will be a classic. <laughs> when the BFI ring me up and say, Ben, is it that year? And I say, no, <laughs> no. Not yet, BFI, hold on. 
I don't know why it's the BFI, but maybe it's DreamWorks. <laughs> well, it's good. well, interesting you mentioned DreamWorks. They'll be coming up in this episode's like <laughs> You'd hope. <laughs> D, anything worthy of mentioning? I was planning on talking about Snack Masters. <laughs> <laughs> so today's episode is pretty much all the songs from 1998's Disney classic Mulan. Uh, sorry, <laughs> 1998's DreamWorks classic The Prince of Egypt. So to find out what was happening in the world when the movie came out, over to you, Alex. Yeah, so it's actually going to be a relatively short news this week because we've actually we've got so many other things to get into and discuss that I've kept it relatively brief. So there was one main news story going on in December 1998, which is when the film came out, and um, that was the impeachment proceedings which began against President Bill Clinton for high crimes and misdemeanours, which in itself sounds like a good film title. I think there is a film called Crimes and Misdemeanours, isn't it? The impeachment stemmed from a sexual harassment lawsuit filed by Paula Jones and his testimony denying that he had engaged with sexual relationship <laughs> I, I with was that so woman, hoping, Mr. Winsky. <laughs> I was so hoping you were going to do the impression. So that was, uh, that was the main news. Um, in music news, Believe by Cher, not when you will believe, <laughs> started the month at number one, but was beaten at Christmas by Spice Girls with Goodbye, which was then taken over by Chef with Chocolate Soy Balls. <laughs> 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 was it that got to number one? Yeah. My word. <laughs> the 27th, which I enjoy, a couple of days after Christmas. <laughs> so close to being Christmas number one. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it would have been great, wouldn't it? Would have gone well with Teletubbies and Bob the Builder. <laughs> yeah, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> but of course, yes, the other thing that happened in December 1998 was the release of what some people have called the greatest animated film of all time. <laughs> they have. These people have not watched Shrek. Well, well, we'll get into it later. We'll get into that discussion later. But some people have actually called it that. That's legitimate. D. Um, D. This film is a classic. Ooh. Is that because it predates 2000? Is that when you're allowed? We're not there yet. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about Shrek anymore. I mean, we have spoken about Shrek for, for a while, but we're not anymore. We're talking about the Prince of Egypt. On a lot of episodes as well. <laughs> yeah. And on its own episode at some point in the future. So the film The Prince of Egypt was directed by the tripart Brenda Chapman, Steve Hickner and Simon Wells. And it was written by Philip Lezebnik, along with storyboarders. It's an adaptation of the Book of Exodus, of course, following the life of Moses from Prince of My Egypt. My favourite book. To leader of the children of Israel, <laughs> along with everything that that includes, including the burning bush and, of course, the plagues. Um, before we find out what Ben and Dee's opinions are, I wondered if either of you would like to take the listeners on a journey into our history with this film. <laughs> I'm wondering when it was going to come up. But it was always going to come up at the beginning. But... I think the best way to describe this is we didn't watch this film in school in the sense that we watched 45 minutes of this constantly in every RE lesson for a year, week after week after week. And I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves, and this is a very British thing, RE was in the music room. It, well, for, at this it time was. it was, yes. <laughs> and it was a very uh, drab setting for what is a very drab first half of a movie. Whoa. First half of a movie. Ooh, I don't. I, don't I still don't that. know about that. We'll but yes, to, I guess to, to add further, that was because we kept having supply teachers, and their instructions were to watch 
put on the Prince of Egypt, and we said every time that we hadn't started it yet, Miss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we actually haven't started that yet. Oh, okay, well, we'll put it on from the beginning. Yeah, and we had, we had sub-teachers every week, because the original teacher, who I think was like a newly qualified teacher, um, only lasted about two <laughs> weeks before quitting. I don't exactly remember why, but I felt like something was thrown at. Burning bush. <laughs> burning bush. <laughs> but we actually did at school have a burning bush several times. Yes, yes, we did. Teachers and cigarettes um, <laughs> and whatnot. So go on then, guys. We've 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 touched on that. What what are your guys from you know from the beginning of this podcast episode? Even though we're about ten minutes in, what is your opinion of this film? I want you to just lay on me. Well, I've already sort of hinted towards it. I think the first half of this movie is really dry and, and it's hard to look at. It's just lots of brown and grey tones. And then as soon as the burning bush bit happens, man, this movie is like a million miles per hour and it's fantastic. It's just like the Bible. I'll have to take your word for it. It's, it's boring and boring and you get to that bit, the burning bush. Wow. Which bit? That bit. <laughs> the burning bush. Oh, wow. <laughs> you've, you've read a lot of the book by that point. Yeah, I've never read the Bible. Go on, man. Aside from this this joke history that we have of watching this repeatedly in a very lopsided way in Ari, I do think this is a very good film. I think I didn't think that as a kid, and I felt that was my view of this this sort of 90s DreamWorks films in general. Road to El Dorado, the Sinbad film. I thought they were just lesser films compared to Disney, but I think the themes of them are just generally more, not more adult, but they they're packaged. They're not as packaged well as Disney are for children, and I think that's the thing. They cover similar themes in a lot of them: death, um, this sort of brotherly relationship that's very key. But they don't put it across. I don't think as well for children. I think they get lost in their own craft too much. Uh, you can tell that from just the actual voice actors that are in this film. I mean, Disney never really has like big names. I mean, I know it's got some, but you know, often not. Usually, like a couple, maybe. Yeah. You know, you think of like Aladdin, yeah, Little Mermaid. They're not, they're not like huge names. Um, Mulan, you know, not huge names. Leah Salonga is just a big um, sort of singer in like Broadway. But this, the the, the, the voice acting cast in this, the budget must have been insane. But yeah, rewatching it a few months ago, I think it's so good, so layered, designed so amazingly, animation's fantastic, bit different, tries a few things that I think are quite risky, like with the sort of hieroglyphics uh, scene. Yeah. Yeah, I think they really pushed the boat out, and clearly people weren't that ready. <laughs> so so you watched it a few months yeah. ago, Ben. Did you, have you watched it recently, or was the last time you watched it? In Ari. <laughs> I guess you must have seen it since because you've seen the second half, that sounds like. Yeah, but I finally watched the second half of it today. <laughs> I probably did watch the second half at some point as a child, but I don't remember, don't remember I it. I don't ever think we did it at school. <laughs> I, I know we never finished it in school. That VHS was burnt out. It's a, it surprises me to hear you say about the beginning, D, because I think like the very beginning of this film is amazing. Like Especially the first like the first scene which we'll get into when we go into the first song mm-hmm. but also that chariot ride thing like what a what a scene it's like it's like it's like fast and the furious but in animated form <laughs> and on horseback <laughs> i thought that was a crook was crazy good can you do like a fast and the furious oh wow well, i'll let you off for that yeah wow. that, that, that's pretty good that <laughs> that checks yeah it checks out but I, I i get like maybe what you mean after that scene but that scene i mean it's even got quips, like there's one point where he's looking up uh, Ramesses' uh, tunic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not the best view from this angle. I mean, you're always looking up to me. That's DreamWorks, yeah. Yeah, you're always looking up to me. That, yeah. So, you know. But let's get into some facts, film facts, because I know you all want them. 
have put the film facts coming at you like a plague of locusts, and that is the actual collective term for a for locusts, a plague. Oh, really? It's quite good. I yeah. like that. So it was actually the first film by DreamWorks to be traditionally animated. I think DreamWorks formed in about 1994. It was uh, formed by Steven Spielberg and like a few people from Disney, um, such as Jeffrey Katzenberg. And this obviously was four years later. They had had a few animated films that were less traditional, sort of like Small Soldiers being an example. Ants, of course. Um, A year, which actually was, I think, a couple of months before, before this film. And so, uh, yeah, so Prince of Egypt was actually the ninth film released by the studio. So, so very, very early on in, the, in their history. Jeffrey Katzenberg actually had the idea for adapting the 1956 film Ten Commandments for animation while he was at Disney. But um, is it Jeremy Eisner? I'm going to say Jeremy Eisner. Michael Eisner? Michael. Michael Eisner. Oh, who's Jeremy Eisner? <laughs> Michael Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons. <laughs> Jeremy Irons. Michael Eisner rejected it flat out. Um, for some unknown reason, I couldn't not find enough, any. Not enough crickets. <laughs> not enough crickets could be the only conclusion we can come to. But yeah, so when actually they co-founded, he co-founded DreamWorks. Jeffrey Katzenberg. This is he actually hired a team who had previously worked for Disney, a crew totaling of three hundred and fifty people. Wow. So he essentially just sniped people from Disney to work on this film. The budget was seventy million. It made two hundred and eighteen point six million at the box office, so a very healthy return. Yep. But it wasn't enough for a top 10 finish of the year. But three other TSFTM alumni films were on the list of top 10 in 1998. Do you guys know what they were? I'm guessing Mulan. Mulan was one of them. Mulan was number seven. Uh, Armageddon. Armageddon was number one of the year. Titanic. Titanic was 97. Uh, 98, 98, 98. Absolutely god-awful film. There's a hint in there. God-awful. God-awful. Bruce Almighty. I don't know. Godzilla. Godzilla. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done Bruce Almighty as an episode. What's the song in Bruce Almighty? Um, yeah, good question. Wake me up before you go, go. <laughs> Why is that the first song that came to my head? I'm going to continue with my facts. <laughs> Katzenberg invited biblical scholars, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, theologians, and Arab American leaders to advise on theological accuracy, which was commended by these groups who also praised DreamWorks for really listening to their input. That's good, though. It is good, and it, and it's good that because I couldn't find much like well, I mean there is some controversy which I'm going to go into in a second, but there wasn't like you could see with like a film like this that it would really annoy a lot of, of people. Yeah, yeah. And actually, and actually, actually, it doesn't seem to have except for three countries, um, which are the Maldives, Malaysia, and Egypt. Egypt, you can kind of understand they get a pretty yeah, bad rap. <laughs> yes. Um, I think Indonesia banned the film, but then it said that they they eventually released it on CD. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they maybe they just had a, a ban against VHS <laughs> that was just taboo, not the actual film. Yeah, yeah, no cinema release, no VHS, but you can release it on CD. <laughs> as soon as Compact Disc comes out, <laughs> everything's forgiven. In 2017, the film was adapted into a stage musical. I don't know if you guys knew about no. that. No. But it nope. opened on the West End in February 2020. Oh. But obviously oh. that was shortly before COVID, so it's coming back this year. So that's on from that movie trip to Boy to the West End. <laughs> I think there might be a link between Moses releasing the plagues on the stage show and what we're going through right now. Oh. I mean, it's left field, but, you know, there's more far-fetched things going around at the moment. I mean, it's less far-fetched than the, the 5G. <laughs> the QAnon things, yeah. 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 So, um, 
That's a good one. I said start telling everybody you know about that. Then. <laughs> so the film has received a lot of praise for its animation style, which Ben, I think you mentioned, as well as the way it uses CGI as an aid to a traditional hand-drawn style rather than a substitute. Because I watched it earlier as well, and I think like one of the main takeaways that I had from it was how good the special effects looked. Yeah, <laughs> like, su- surprising, good, especially like the water effects. Oh, the, the bit when he separates the... Um... When he parts the Red Sea is yeah. absolutely amazing, incredible. It's how visual. how it how I don't know how they've done it, but it just looks incredible. Yeah, it, there's very much a suck it and see style of mixing two and three D here. It, you can tell it's still a sort of an experimental phase, but generally they make the right choices for the right things. Oh, oh yeah, that Definitely. that shot where they're walking through and there's the, the the flash of the storm and you see the whale in the water yeah. is just is incredible. Yeah, as a rule. The characters are all hand-drawn, um, and in fact, each character had their own individual team, <laughs> which wow. I thought was interesting. I don't know if that's the kind of thing that people they still do now, but... Mm. And then the backgrounds, and then, yeah, obviously, like special effects like the water, and even, like, the dust in the desert was all CG made. I think they said about 110 of the scenes featured out of 126 featured CGI in some wow. aspect. I think it is fairly common to have an animation team behind a specific character to give them their own feel. Because I know Jessie in Toy Story 2 had her own mostly female animators behind her. So I think it's, again, it's just to give a bit of uniqueness to the development. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes sense. And also stops other people like tinkering, I suppose, doesn't it? Like, oh, well, I've drawn it slightly differently. Or... Yeah. So it keeps like continuity, I suppose. I well. think it's a more recent thing. I mean, Disney used to just reuse, you know, oh, it's a bear in this film. Yeah, it can be a tiger in the next film. Who cares? Just take the same <laughs> copy, carbon copy of it and just paint over it. So I, I imagine it's, a, it's a, a 90s thing onwards. Yeah. I think as well, you touched on that hieroglyphic chase sequence, which I think is like, it really stands out as well. I, when I was remembering the film before I watched it, I felt that, that was the opening scene. But obviously it does reproduce the opening scene, but just in a hieroglyphic form. I can't get that word out. Um, but yeah, I thought that that was like a real standout moment. But I think there was visually, there was so many in this oh, film. Oh yeah, that's the, when the throughout. meteors are falling on the Sphinx, when it lights yeah. up behind the eyes, that's incredible. So I did reference it at the beginning, but in 2019, Sci-Fi, the website, did a 20-year retrospective and called it the greatest animated movie of all time. And all I've written next to that is thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it got the clicks. Yeah. I mean, it's it's Sci-Fi. It's when people... Yeah, it's also also the Sci-Fi channel. I'm assuming it's the Sci-Fi channel as in their website. I think it's Sci-Fi Wire, yeah. Okay, right, yeah. yeah. I mean... Every animated film ever has probably got an article online saying it's the greatest animated film by someone. Um, yeah. Because people find it boring to say things like The Lion King because no one cares. <laughs> if someone says their favourite film is The Godfather, no one cares. It's because it's not a good film. No, but in general, it's because it's kind of it's just like a lot of people think that. Yeah, it's like Casablanca is the best film ever. Citizen yeah. Kane is the best film ever. Yeah, that sort yeah of thing. things like that. It's just, it's just, it's not that like it's wrong, but it's just boring. Yeah, so it's probably very cool to think this is the, fa- the your favorite animated film. <laughs> I mean, the article itself I did read it was quite tongue in cheek, and it was actually very funny. So I would recommend reading it because there was a lot of uh, <laughs> there was a lot of amusing references. In. Alex's new job for Sci-Fi Wire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Can you imagine? No, because yeah, this. So there's just an article about this being the greatest animated film of all time, and uh, what if by Kate Winslet being the best <laughs> yeah. song from an animated film of all time? So we've spoken a bit about the film there. We're going to be speaking about the film a bit more when we go into the songs because there are a lot of them. And I feel like we're already a, a decent portion of the way through the podcast. I don't realise that we haven't touched on any of the songs yet. So let's just start. Let's just start from the beginning. So the songs were written by Stephen Schwartz. Music by Hank Zimmer, obviously. Of course. He's on every animated film going at this time. <laughs> just just every film, general. <laughs> just, just every film. Um, so the first song is Deliver Us. I've put some it up in one word. I went with bludgeoning. It just pounds into you relentlessly with themes. It's a traumatic experience. It's aggressive at points. It's beautiful at others. It's just, it's just a great opening for me, and also has has a lot of um, similarities with the Circle of Life. Again, referencing Lion King, but even the way that the scene ends with that kind of like sound. I guess that's Hank Zimmer's work, and then goes straight into the next scene. It's very reminiscent of that. Yeah, I mean, presumably there are Disney connections here with Jeffrey Katzenberg, anyway. But that really felt to me like it was kind of. Not well, not paying homage, obviously stealing <laughs> that idea from Disney. Um, but yeah, what did you guys think of this song? Yeah, so I mean, sort of following from what you said, I I wrote down PTSD inducing. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the song reminded me mostly of "Look Down" from the beginning of Les Mis. I put that exact thing. I've literally put the exact <laughs> that comment down, D. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that. No, really similar, really similar. What I really like about this song, more than the actual thing itself, is what the song sort of lives on through the entire film as like a motif. Yeah. And by the time you get, well, I don't know if we're coming back to it at the end, but spoilers, you hear it again at the end. <laughs> yeah. And you don't need to hear the words because it's drilled into you so much in this beginning. It just it just keeps mm. with you the entire film. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like it's it feels like a musical opening. And when you said there was musical came out, last year i could i could almost envision that you know on stage just with like this yeah. kind of quiet chorus background it really sort of punches and at the same time it's catchy you almost feel like you want to sing it but it's like i catch myself because it's not cheerful <laughs> it's really <laughs> serious it reminded me a bit of the rooster about song in dumbo as well just that sort of you yeah. know almost kind of like tongue-in-cheek singing almost like you know we're singing but we have nothing to sing about really other than just the pain and hardship that we have to endure at the you know the hands of Ramses. Like I said, I really love it, but I just don't feel like I could sing it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you both said, it's really similar to Look Down from Limmy's, but it's kind of like dialed to the nth degree or to, oh, yeah. to the heavens. Because I, th- I feel like with, with at least with Look Down, there's kind of, you kind of laugh to yourself a bit because there's that part where Javert and Jean Valjean introduce themselves midway through the song. And you're like, well, I'm very aware of watching musical here. But with this one, it's kind of, it's just so relentlessly, like, mm. bleak. Yeah. But I think as well, the visuals of it, like, are just, like, harrowing. <laughs> and um, the struggle of, like, the working people's liquor of the monument to their own slavery, essentially. The street raiders snatching and throwing babies to crocodiles. Cries of deliverers, which echo, like you said, they come back at the end and then all the way through the film. Yep. The fragile hope of a child in a basket swashing between the reeds and hippos and snapping creatures of doom and a huge cargo ship. You can tell I'm reading my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> They're squeezing so much in, so much like iconography, so many sort of uh, themes and messages like really crammed in to you know sometimes like two or three minutes there's a lot to digest and that's why i think 
a young kid, it's just like, oh, this is just a very dark song, as I probably would think <laughs> as a child. But there's a lot going on in this film, in this song, especially. And it almost, it's, it seems to be building up, I guess, to the narrative we're about to see, the tipping point for this huge, drastic change that's about to happen. You know, you're about to witness something. And I think it's that preparation, which I think, again, probably Hans Zimmer and that sort of crash are very much like Circle of Life. You know, it's just, it just hits. Mm. Um, it's like, you know, sitting in your seat, you're, you're about to get ready for something. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yep, definitely. And well, let's actually move on to the second song, because the second song actually comes in the middle of the first song, interestingly. Yep. So it's um, called River Lullaby. Um, and actually, it again, Live Delivers appears multiple times throughout. And I think this is a general point about about all the songs, is that they don't just appear once. I think every single one, maybe apart from Dee's favourite one, playing with the boys, whatever it's called. <laughs> Not that. All I can think <laughs> of when you say that is, hear it, let's hear it for the boys. <laughs> yeah. I think I feel like that's the only one that doesn't crop up at least mm, twice. So yeah, so there's this first, so just to describe the scene, in between all this horrific visual imagery that you get that I just described, there's a, the scene where Moses' mother and sister and brother, I think, uh, there's certainly another child who doesn't ever seem to appear maybe again in the film. They put Moses in the basket and she sings a lullaby, which is then repeated by the sister later down in the film um, and sort of acts as the connection between Moses and his Hebrew birth. And it's that song that makes him realise that everything he learnt up until that point is a lie. So yeah, so the song is sung by Israeli singer Ofra Hazer. Um, what do you think? I mean, it is just practically just a part of Deliverers. So you could just yeah. clip what I said before and just change <laughs> the pitch so it sounds feminine or, or a really weird child impression later on. I'm pretty sure it's not a child singing. Oh, when the sister sings it. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's it's a very weird... It's, it's not a child. It can't be a child singing that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's very nice in a weird juxtaposed to the middle of the song that we're listening to. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of introduces that the theme that kind of runs throughout about parents and children, really, doesn't it? Because I think the idea of a lullaby is something that a parent sings to a child in order to sort of make them feel comfortable. And this is a very uncomfortable <laughs> story in general. It kind of introduces that idea to the storyline. And obviously you have relationship between Ramesses and his father, which obviously is not great, and then subsequently Ramesses' father with his son and all that. So it kind of, yeah, it kind of introduces that. What did you think, Ben? Yeah, coming off the back of Deliverers, I know we say it's partly the same song. It just feels very unmemorable. Like, I, I re-listened to it a few hours ago. Can't remember much other than the sort of, probably being quite rudimentary in, in describing it, but the sort of the almost traditional singing part. Hmm. It, I, don't, I don't know how it's best describe it, but I found that quite interesting, or at least probably because I feel like it's capturing more of the maybe the period or the place or the culture. I found that quite unique and interesting to think about, but otherwise, quite unmemorable. I think the baby is hideous. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like the baby looks like. Do you know? Do you know who John Lovitz is? No. <laughs> um, you do, you do. He's always like the sad sack. He was like the guy who was going to kill himself in Friends. Phoebe. Oh no, yeah, I know exactly who you mean. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He looks like, watch it back, it's John Lovitz. <laughs> um, how that turned into the hunk that is Moses, I will never know. That's another thing to point out here that Moses and Ramesses in this are very hunky. Yep. <laughs> Both very ripped. I mean, it's Val Kilmer and Ralph Fiennes, so. 
Yeah, well, we'll get we'll get onto Ralph Fiennes later on. <laughs> so the third song that features in the film, and again comes up later on, but this is the first time uh, we hear it, is "All I Ever Wanted," which is plays as Moses. My bass hunter. <laughs> it plays, but as Moses returns home after the confrontation that I, the aforementioned confrontation with his sister, where she sings the lullaby to him, um, and then there's a reprise by the Queen just afterwards. Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz, the writer of songs, has said that the song came from a visit the team took to an Egyptian temple. The temple wasn't open to the public at the time, and he recalls the way the moonlight hit the white columns and seeing hieroglyphs, which triggered the tune somehow. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of steps in between him seeing some white columns and some hieroglyphs and then the actual song, but that's all I could find. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you guys think of the song? I think continuing the theme of Les Mis, how incredibly Les Mis is this song? <laughs> like the, the first playing of this is just who am I from who am I? <laughs> and it's it's in the same placement in terms of whether it's in the story it's the same question of like who really am I as a person what path should I take at this point I think this might be the last time I mentioned Les Mis but I might ad-lib some Les Mis stuff later on yeah we'll find we'll find a way to get back in <laughs> Ben this is one of those sort of musical leitmotifs that I always think about in this film because I know it comes up again when uh, Moses is dropping the plagues and there's almost elements of this song coming back up as he's singing to Ramses. Yeah. I-, I really like this song. I think if you just listen to it as a soundtrack, I don't think it works. But the sort of the internal conflict of what is it I want? Do I want this adopted family? You know, they, they his relationship with his brother, which is clearly key to him. He's got incredible wealth, you know, power. Or is it actually his true connection to the Jews? Is it his birthright? Is it, you know, that internal conflict of what he's put these people under, all this stress and pain? And you can hear it in his voice, you know, that that changing how it goes but still stays in rhythm, I think is really cleverly done. And then obviously it goes into the weird hieroglyphic um, scene. Probably, as just for intrigue and breaking it down, my favourite song in this and... You know, that's saying something coming up. I Yeah, I just really, really like it. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys have kind of touched on, on the points that I had. I mean, it's it's, it's this classic want song uh, oh, trope like that you see. <laughs> yeah, and um, obviously they even handily draw attention to it, didn't they? All I ever wanted is literally in the title of the of the song, um, and it and it yeah. I mean, so it's no wonder that you D are seeing similarities between that and Les Mis because it's it's something that they use in all musicals and that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not like something like Les Mis in the sense that it's not all sung throughout, but certainly when the songs hit, they're at the points when those main songs hit within a musical, and I think that this one is a perfect example of that. I think this one maybe more than the first two is the first song that really plays a narrative role. I think the other two... Well, I mean, it's not the other two don't, but they kind of set... Yes. The first Deliver is mm-hmm. essentially there to set the scene of, mm-hmm. of the film, and it does a very good job doing that. But this one is is designed to progress the narrative or progress the character of Moses and display his sort of internal struggle. And I think this, this is why, in all musicals, this song is there, because it is that point in the film where they cross the threshold or they you know, they find out something new about themselves they didn't know before and that's what drives the story on from yes. this point. So it's pivotal to the film and I think it's very well done. I think maybe it's a little on the nose. <laughs> I think with this though, because I, I completely agree with you there, but I think what's great about this song and this film, because the repetition of it, I don't think Moses ever truly kind of accepts one or the other. That conflict is continuous. 
And that's why yeah. I love like later on, it's he still is almost hating himself um, for what he's doing. And it's just that it's not the why can't I have both, but I know I can't and I have to live with that. And that hurts. Yeah. You know, again, <laughs> this is an animated film. <laughs> But it kind of it draws back completely on what you said at the very beginning, is in that this film doesn't bend to children in the same way that a Disney film often would, or it doesn't mask things in the same way. That internal conflict of his character is there throughout the film, and it's never truly reconciled, like you say. No. And I never got that as a kid. Like I did no. not fully grasp that. Yes, I know he hates his brother, and that kind of he leaves, and he finds his true purpose, but not the, the depth and the detail that goes into. And again, you know, they've made a biblical epic but without the sort of really sort of deep characters still in this huge sandal story and i think that's really really hard to do so that brings an end to part one of our mammoth task of going through all the songs of the prince of egypt we'll be back next week same time next thursday if you listen to this in the future the episode's already out just go and hit play right now so until then bye All I ever wanted was to see you smiling. <laughs>